Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at weather in the dog days of summer and where we came up with that name. Also, August is dog month, so we'll talk about that. Also, political happenings. We'll take a little deeper dive into Wyoming politics, and then we'll talk about a Uber of 1901. So glad you joined us today. Hope you enjoy our show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather, it's definitely been hot. And so I got back to looking, we always refer to the term dog days of summer. And from the Farmer's Almanac, the dog days of summer last from July 3rd to August 11th. What are the dog days of summer exactly? What do they have to do with dogs? The ancient origin of this common phrase might surprise you. The term dog days traditionally refers to a period of particularly hot and humid weather occurring during the summer months of July and August in the Northern Hemisphere. In ancient Greece and Rome, the dog days were believed to be the time of drought, bad luck, and unrest when dogs and men alike would be driven mad by the extreme heat. Today, the phrase doesn't conjure up such bad imagery. Instead, the dog days are associated purely with a time of summer's peak temperature and humidity. This period of sweltering weather coincides with the year's helical meaning at sunrise, rising of Cirrus, the dog star. Cirrus is part of the constellation Canis Majoris, the greater dog, which is where Cirrus gets its canine nickname, as well as its official name, Alpha Canis Majoris. Not including our own sun, Cirrus is the brightest star in the sky. In ancient Greece, Egypt, and Rome, it is believed that the dawn's rising of Cirrus in mid to late summer contributes to extreme heat of the seasons. In other words, the combined heat of super bright Cirrus and our sun was thought to be the cause of summer sweltering temperatures. The meaning Cirrus even stems from the ancient Greek Cerorus, meaning scorching. For the ancient Egyptians, the dawn's rising of Cirrus also coincided the Nile River's flood season. They used the star as a watchdog for the event. Of course, the appearance of Sirius does not actually affect seasonal weather here on Earth, but its appearance during the hottest day of the summer ensures that the lower surrounding star lives on. The exact dates of the dog days can vary from source to source, and because they are traditionally tied to the dawn rising of Sirius, they have changed over time. However, most sources agree that dog days occur in mid to late summer. Here at the Farmer's Almanac, we consider the dog days to be the 40 days beginning July 3rd and ending August 11th. This is soon after the summer solstice in late June, which also tends to be the beginning of the worst of summer's heat. And since we're talking about the dog days of summer, also August is the National Dog Month. All during the month of August, National Dog Month celebrates our lovable canine pal smack in the middle of the dog days of summer. Dogs are the number one most common owned pet on the planet, and with a good reason. Did you know that scientific studies prove our possum companions make us happier, less stressed, and more optimistic? The list of benefits to spending time with a dog goes on and on, but it all proves one thing, that a month-long celebration of our furry best friends has been a long time coming. Whether your dog burrows under the blankets with you at night, plays in the sprinklers, or alerts you to a health need, we know they are constantly improving our lives and making them more fun. Not only that, but the companionship and affection we share with them makes their lives better too. Dog lovers know a life without a dog is a life missing something special, and that's a fact worth celebrating. 
This is the easy part. Celebrate with your best pal. Take an extra long walk, play fetch, or spare an extra treat for your dog. Get your dog the toy he's been wanting or visit the dog park. Speaking of visits, make your next veterinarian appointment to ensure your dog stays healthy and strong. Donate to your local shelter or to a larger dog nonprofit. You can also volunteer your services. Not only will the dog appreciate the support, but so will their future human companions. However you celebrate, be sure to use hashtag National Dog Month to post to social media. And I hope you all have that dog companion that you have. And I'm lucky enough to have five of them. So definitely, it is going to be a busy, busy month. Taking a look at Wyoming political happenings, we're getting closer to our August 16th primary election and things are heating up. In our governor's race, it seems we're down to Gordon and Bayen, with Gordon having the advantage. Being the incumbent, but Bayen has been hitting the campaign trail hard. And depending on turnout, he might be able to surprise a few people. If he isn't elected this term, he could be a front-runner in 2026. In our congressional race, Hageman has been polling well so far, and I think she can win. But with Cheney's money and our sudden influx of Democratic Republicans, that could help Cheney's numbers. These Democratic Republicans also could help Gordon, Heathercott, and Degefelder's numbers. The issue of party swapping could have been addressed in the legislature along with the runoff election, but the people that are benefiting from this sure don't want to see this go away when they're getting elected by the current system. In our superintendent of public instruction race, Schroeder and Degenfelder are the two front runners. Since this week, Tom Kelly dropped out. Schroeder was appointed to the position when Julian Bailo left to take a similar position in Virginia. I think either candidate can win this election, but the question will be the demo vote. And where will they go? And I assume Degenfelder, who would be considered the less conservative candidate. And finally, our secretary of state race is down to two candidates, Gray and Nethercott. With Gray being the conservative candidate and Nethercott being the progressive or the rhino of the two, Nethercott will definitely benefit from the Democratic voters. This race has had a lot of backroom dealings, in my opinion, from the get-go. Dan Dockstaner, who was in the race but dropped out and endorsed Nethercott, and the current Secretary of State, Ed Buchanan, was going to run, but then at the last minute decided not to run, which opened up the field. The governor recently announced that Buchanan would be appointed as a district judge a rather interesting turn of events. And most recently, Max Maxfield, a former Secretary of State, has leveled charges against Gray on campaign fundraising issues. Huh. Another strange turn of events against Gray, the conservative candidate. I think Gray can win, but this might be the closest race of the evening. Election integrity has been up front in this year's election. And will it become an issue for Wyoming in this primary election with the parties involved? I guess we'll find out on August 17th. And also remember to go out and vote. We need to make sure that your voice is heard August 16th for our Wyoming primaries. Today we're going to take a look at a Uber of 1901, riding the stage from Casper to Thermopolis, Wyoming, 1901 by Tom Davis. And there's an editor's note here. This account was first published in the Trona County Tribune, August 1st, 1901, under the headlines, Over the Stage Line. Special thanks to Tom Davis, formerly of Grable, Wyoming, now of Cody, for finding the account and sending us the transcript. If you've never made a trip on the stage from Casper to Thermopolis in 36 hours, a distance of 140 miles, and you have missed something in this life which you would remember until your last day. Being up for two nights and days seems hard, but we assure you 
our readers, that they would be kept awake along the entire route and they would have a good appetite at all the meals. You leave Casper at 9 o'clock in the evening with a four-team horse ahead of you. After traveling west 14 miles, you come to the first relay station where the four horses, which have been going at a continual trot all day, are unhooked and four fresh horses take their place. In five minutes, you are again heading west at full trot. About midnight, you pass the Stone Ranch where O.K. Garvey is living and has been running the past years. In another hour or two, you come to Casper Creek Road Ranch, which is now under the management of Ballard and Steed. A small mailbag is dropped off at this place, but no one was disturbed from their slumbers. You hit the road again and keep time with a nod of your head to all the ruts and jolts encountered until you reach William Clark's home ranch on South Casper Creek about 2.30 in the morning. Editor's note, William Clark owned and operated the Casper Lander Thermopolis stage line. He called his ranch Hobart. There was even a Hobart post office for a time near present-day Natrona, Wyoming, which is west of Casper. You are fed breakfast here. Although it is somewhat earlier than most of you are accustomed to eating breakfast, you will nevertheless enjoy the meal, for Mrs. Clark and her daughters are well aware how to set a nice breakfast. The good cooking and the hospitality of the hostess are indeed a comfort to the trial mortals who have been bumping along the road all night long. After you finish your breakfast and have a little social chat with Mrs. Clark, you make your way out to the stagecoach and get ready to proceed on your journey. At Clark's Ranch is where you notice the first break of day in the east, and you feel more like laying down on the ground and taking a nap than hitting the trail again. But just as sleep is beckoning, you hear the drivers all aboard. And in a minute, you are again heading west on a swift trot as another fresh team of four horses has been hooked up to your chariot. When Mr. Clark's ranch is a few miles behind you, the sun makes its first appearance and you can see evidence of life on the lone prairie. Now you are traveling along what is known as the hogback of the Powder River country. There is not a freighter who has ever been along this road in wet weather, but who knows all about the hogback. But when it rains or snows, the horses sink into the gumbo up to their bellies, and the wagon wheels go down as far as their hubs. This few miles of road has caused more profanity from freighters than all the rest of the roads between Casper and Walton. Subsequently, everyone has named this particular spot the Freighter's Delight. After getting well on the hogback, you come up to what is known as Hell's Half Acre. It is a patch of ground which has the appearance of one time containing a bed of coal, and the coal having been all burned out. There are deep sinks in the ground, almost half a mile deep, and peaks sticking up in all shapes and sizes. It truly is half an acre of, so far as good for nothing land, is concerned. After leaving this spot and traveling for several miles, you meet the eastbound stage, which is bringing all the mail, express, and passengers from Lander from office to Casper. You get a squint of those dusty pastures and wonder if they are as tired and sleepy as you are. And from the way they look at you, they are probably wondering the same thing about you. Another change of teams is made at Keg Springs, where Martin Oliver is a stock tender. Eight more miles and you reach Walton, where you are greeted by Oliver Johnson, the postmaster and general manager of the Walton Commercial Company store. He will talk business with the driver, chat with the passengers, and wait on customers all at the same time. Oliver has sheep interests in the vicinity, and the management of the store at Walton is so close to his moneyed interests that he is perfectly satisfied with his lot. General Tom and Mrs. Hood are living in Walton's, where they have management of the hotel. The Cooper Dipping Plant is located here, as well as the large shearing pens, and many thousands of sheep are, are sheared here each spring. 
and given a good hot bath in its loose and moist mister, Holiday says is the best remedy on earth to cure scabs and give sheep a clean, nice-looking fleece. Hundreds of sacks of wool are stacked here from early spring until late summer, waiting for freighters to come along and haul them to Casper for shipment east on the railroad. After the mail is transferred and the express is unloaded, the passengers are again told to all get aboard. So you arouse yourself from any pleasant dreams you are having, or tear yourself away from an interesting conversation, and start for Round Hill. There you will take dinner and perhaps get a little sleep before changing cars for either Lander or Thermopolis. Another editor's note, the route divided at Round Hill, where one coach headed north to Thermopolis and a second west to Lander. Everything is unloaded from the coach here and divided up for two branch roads, one leading to Thermopolis and the other to Lander. Round Hill Station is looked after by Mr. and Mrs. George Demarest. Mr. Demarest looking after the stock and Mrs. Demarest attends to the comfort of the inner man of the passengers. She gets up to a good meal, but as general things, most passengers are too tired and sleepy to enjoy eating. After dinner, the weary passengers lay down in the barn out of the hot sun, and many are snoring away when they feel a jolt in their ribs and awaken to find the driver is about ready to leave on the final 75 miles of the trip, which will require the balance of the day and all next night, and you get a new driver here, and if it happens to be Gene Brown, you are sure of a safe trip, for he is not only a careful driver, but he can make better time and allow the horses to go slower than any man you've ever rode with. You start out across the burning sand and alkali flats for Thermopolis. What the lander passengers might see along the road that is interesting, we know not, for we have never gone that route. But the Thermopolis passengers experience the hardest part of the trip between Round Hill and Lost Cabin, for it is done during the hottest part of the day, and you pass through about six miles of alkali flat, and the road is very rough. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you reach Lost Cabin, where there is a long-lost gold mine, which Mr. Oakey found a few years ago when he put up his general store. There are a number of buildings at Lost Cabin, the elegant mansion of Mr. Oakey, which is almost complete. The mansion is indeed a treat to die after coming in from the miles of waste and desert that you have been traveling over all day. After transacting the necessary business at Lost Cabin, the driver again shouts, All aboard! and the coach starts across country headed for a mountain peak, which you are informed you must cross over before you get supper. At first, the mountain looks about 20 miles away, but after the driver informs you you about supper, it looks to be as twice that far away. A few hours from Lost Cabin, you come to a steep hill, where it looks almost impossible for a team of horses to descend with a wagon. Driver stops and rough locks the wheels and makes an examination of the wagon and the harness. Everything looks all right. You suddenly pitch downward. When you get to the bottom, you say to yourself that if you ever go down that hill again, you will get out and walk down. This is called Moore Hill because it's only a short distance from the ranch J.W. Moore once owned on Bridger Creek. M.L. Bishop is living on this ranch now and is stock tender for Mr. Clark's stage line. Another change of horses is made here, and once again, you start for the mountain, which you must pass over before you get supper. You travel along the valley of Bridger Creek, in which are located many prosperous ranches, the first over the Moore Ranch being the Ryder Ranch, where Mrs. Ryder and her daughter Mimi live and thrive on the little garden. They also have some stock running out on the range. We notice Minnie coming up from the creek, where she had been watering horses and other stock, but her manner of riding was not appropriate with her style of dress, and she quickly made an escape into a nearby draw and out of sight as soon as she noticed the stage. The next ranch up the creek is owned by Samuel Warden, and a great deal of valuable land. 
which has not yet been cleared of sagebrush, but he has a nice garden spot and has the reputation of furnishing the nicest lot of garden truck passengers of any in this part of the country. A little farther up the creek, you come to the D Ranch, where William Long has made his home for years. He has one of the nicest and most valuable ranches in the valley. He has a large tract of land cleared and raised and puts up hundreds of tons of alfalfa each year. Mr. Long is postmaster at D Ranch, and all the settlers on Bridger Creek receive their mail at his office. After you leave D Ranch, you commence to climb the mountain, on the other side of which you are promised dinner. But it is already beginning to get dark, and it is a two-hour ride before you will get to the mountain home ranch. You commence to realize that meals are far and few between. Horses must necessarily travel slow up the mountain, and the weary passengers are beginning to suffer from the combination of hunger, thirst, sleep, and fatigue. After a long pull of an hour or more, the stage finally reaches the top of the mountain, where the horses are given a short rest. When you start to slide down the other side of the mountain, where you strike the head of Kirby Creek, and Tom Clark's ranch. Mr. Clark has a nice ranch house and a banner seat which he runs on the nearby range. You are attracted by the lights from his camp as you glide by on your rapid rush to supper. It's about 10 o'clock p.m. when we reach Mr. Clark's home ranch, where Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Burgess are in charge. This is one place you've been looking for for a long time, and when you get your feet under the table, you're not disappointed. This is where you'll get one of the nicest meals along the entire route. Mrs. Burgess seems to know just what the weary travelers most desire. She is an excellent cook, and the man who has not satisfied with the meal he gets here is indeed hard to suit. A man never took a meal at the Brown Palace or Palmer House that gives such satisfaction as the one he gets at the Mountain Home Ranch. After supper, if the stage is on time, you are allowed to rest about 10 minutes while a fresh team is hitched up. Soon you are off for Thermopolis, which is 40 miles of distance and which will require an all-night driver before you reach there. There are many interesting sites along this stretch of road, if you have any desire to look for them. The first and most interesting is a stone chimney, which has stood on the Lone Prairie since the early 50s. Two hunters and trappers built cabins at this only place. They were the first white settlers in this part of the country. They had not been here very long before the Indians found them, burned their cabins, and killed the settlers. But their chimney has remained here undisturbed for all these years, serves as a headstone for the, all the white men who lost their lives in those early years. You travel on and on, even getting a little sleep now and then when a smooth stretch of road is reached, but you are awakened so often that it's only an aggravation trying to sleep. So then you brace yourself up and take a look at the countryside in the moonlight. About daybreak, you reach the turbulent waters of the Bighorn River. Then you come to Andersonville, and across the river you will see where the old town of Thermopolis was located just three years ago. There is a schoolhouse at Andersonville in which Miss Can is teaching the summer term. She has about a dozen scholars, but where they come from is beyond the power of the human eye to see. Thermopolis is six miles from here, but it is the longest six miles you have ever yet traveled. You pass over hills through canyons, around creeks and curves. By the time you reach town, you are certain you have traveled at least 10 miles from the little schoolhouse seen along the wayside. Finally reach the Mopolis, completely tired out and exhausted. The first thing you do is look for a bed in which to fall, where you plan to sleep the sleep of the tired and weary pilgrim far from home. After remaining in bed all the rest of the day and the following night, you are ready to go over to the hot springs and take a bath to relieve yourself of some of the real estate you have accumulated on your person along the stage route. 
It requires 125 head of horses to keep the stage moving on this route, and there are at least 20 men employed. It matters not what kind of weather we have. Coaches must be kept on the move. They carry the U.S. mail and take time. The mail waits for no man. Mr. Clark has conducted this line for these many years and has given universal satisfaction to the government and the passengers. Everyone hopes he again will be awarded a new mail contract this fall after his present contract expires. Kind of the, as we talked about at the start, this was a Uber of the 1901, the original Ubers. And can you only imagine that ride if you were listening to the story and you're sitting in that stage and there's no shock absorbers, there's no air conditioning, no heat, no nothing in there, no radio to listen to. It, you're getting every little jar back and forth and definitely a ride that you'll never forget. Thanks everyone for joining us today and we hope you enjoyed our show. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming here at Let's Talk Wyoming, your everything Wyoming podcast.